Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Our first scripture today comes from Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 6. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of the pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people. It is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away. And you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doing, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up David, a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which we will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson continues in our journey of First and Second Samuel and the stories of David's rise to begin the dynasty, the line and succession of David uh, that begins um, in this place where we have just been. We are continuing on with 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Now when the king was settled in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, the king said to the prophet Nathan, See, now I am living in a house of cedar, but the ark of God stays in a tent. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that you have in mind, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Are you the one to build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent and a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about among all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may live in their own place, and be disturbed no more. 
and evildoers shall afflict them no more as formerly. For the time that I appoint the judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offering, offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we come into our series very quickly, if you remember, David was the shepherd boy, as God just reminds us and says, I took you from the pasture among the sheep to make you prince. That sums up our journey the past month, month and a half, with David being pulled out from the field and anointed by Saul to be the next king, but not yet. Saul was king then. Even among his handsome and military strong brothers, little David from the field was brought and set aside to do something amazing. Then we have David and Goliath, a story we all know well. David stands up and says, I will face him because the Lord is with me. And he runs to face Goliath, takes him out. Um, after that, you have Saul, who's still the king, and David, kind of the upstart commander who are working together, but then Saul becomes jealous because while Saul is killing his thousands, David is killing his ten of, tens of thousands. Saul begins to get jealous, and Saul breaks a command from God. When he's supposed to wipe out the Amalekites, he doesn't do that. He leaves some of their uh, 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 crops and some of their herds, doesn't wipe out all the people as God told him. So God then departs from Saul, and Saul's decline starts while David's rise begins. They meet in the middle. Saul tries to kill David a couple of times. David escapes. Then there's the relationship between Saul's son Jonathan and David, a special relationship both of military pledging to one another, but also as friends, a special bond and friendship. Then Saul and Jonathan are killed in battle. Bless you. David grieves. David does everything right. David is with God and gives God all the credit and seeks God's guidance. We don't have a sense at all that David is trying to play politics or seeking uh, power ahead of God. David does all the right things until finally it culminates with where we were last week. David defeats the Philistines once and for all, then goes by the house of Abinadab, who has the Ark of the Covenant, picks it up, 
brings it into Jerusalem as a sign of this new beginning, unifies the tribes, and dances before the Lord with all his might. And if you remember last week, we talked about the linen ephod that he would have worn, not meant to be worn without anything else, but David did. It would have been a provocative move, and yet the ephod itself was worn by priests, so it was a sign of a religious ceremony. So David is skillfully blending faith, the presence of God, and his new kingship and dynasty. So he comes in to all of the praise and all the celebration, this triumphal entry. We talked about that in response to Jesus. Very easily you could look at David and say, what kind of king is this? Dancing mostly, as we say in the South, naked. This is our new king, but everybody's on board that day. That is one of David's best day. Even his detractors, even those who seek to usurp his throne that is barely established, those who are not David's fans, that day no one could beat David. That day David was the king and could do no wrong. All was in his favor, again because of God, and again skillfully blended both the realm of politics and faith. So here we move to the next scene. So the first thing a king needs to do is what? Build a palace. Right. So David builds himself a palace of cedar. Why cedar? It was um, prevalent. They talk throughout the Bible about the cedars of Lebanon, how they're big and tall and thick and beautiful and strong. Cedar was always spoken of in a positive sense. It was a material fit for royalty. So David builds his house, his palace, and enters Nathan, the prophet. So the first time we hear of Nathan. Up until here, it's been Samuel. Samuel now is dead and gone. And Nathan comes to the forefront. We don't know much about him other than he's a prophet. And so David, again doing the right thing, goes to see the prophet, goes to his pastor and says, gosh, I'm, I'm living in this fancy house, this palace that I just built of cedar. It's beautiful. It's gorgeous. And there God is still in a tent. God still dwells in the ark and there's no temple yet. Remember, there's no temple. And David says, I want to build God a temple. Maybe a little bit of guilt there. Oops, I should have done that with God first took care of my, my palace, but I, I want to make this right. I want to take care of God and give him a house. Nathan says, okay, do it. Not uncommon for rulers to come in and erect places of worship for their gods, whatever their gods were. It helped establish the line of that ruler, that king. And David is being faithful. Everything David has done so far with God has been right. So Nathan says, do it. So that night, which David, I'm sure, is excited, probably can't sleep. This is what I'm going to do. I can't wait to get this started. God comes to Nathan and says, go tell David this. Did I ever ask for a house to be built for me? 
from the time that we came out of Egypt? Did I ask for some place to be built for me? No, it is, uh, to paraphrase, it is not necessary at this time. You will not build my house. Your son will build my house. Who's his son? Solomon, right? Uh, David and Bathsheba, who we'll get to next week. Woo, things to come. <laughs> Solomon is their child, and Solomon will be tasked with building the temple, but not yet. God says no to David. David wants to build a temple. God says no. And so Nathan goes and tells David all that God has spoken. But in the midst of that conversation, God says, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Okay. We have a sense from some of this interaction that God is resisting being put into one spot. And remember, this is a big moment in the history of Israel. They have gone from nomads, they were wandering around for generations. They were continued to be occupied and kicked off of land. They were fighting to get the promised land that God had promised them. And now they were there. So several things are going on. They're moving from a tribal, more nomadic society to a state. It's the development of the state, the house of Israel under David the king. It's a big shift in who they are and who they have always been. It's a new beginning. Saul did not work out as king, but David is going to. And so now they're in a relatively fixed space. They will begin to then expand the, their empire and seek to conquer as David grows in power. And so God says, no, I, that, that's not what I need. I don't want to be confined in your space. I'm not ready for that. That's not for you. God says no to David. But yes to Solomon down the line. So what's the important part of this? What does it mean for us? There are a couple of things. One, this is pivotal for the reasons I just mentioned, going from a tribal to a state, a tribal society and culture to a more fixed location and a nation, and all that comes with being fixed and having those structures. But one of the things God says is that although I will continue to judge you by obeying my laws or not, you still need to do that, my steadfast love will never leave the house of David. And that is a big new revelation in the Bible thus far. It is one of the first moments that we see God openly talking about what we will come to see as Protestant Christians and Presbyterians as the doctrine of justification by grace, meaning we didn't earn it. It's not by works that we are saved. It is by the grace of God alone. 
And God says, you are going to make mistakes and I will judge you accordingly. Doesn't throw out the law. But he says, even though you need to abide and judgment will continue to be a part of our relationship, my steadfast love will never leave you like it did with Saul. Poor Saul. The Spirit of God left Saul when he disobeyed God. And now God already, and this is pre-Jesus, big time, thousand years pre, that we get this understanding that God, who we sometimes see as this Old Testament tyrant of wrath and destruction, opens up this idea that my steadfast love, hesed, one of my favorite Hebrew words, God's steadfast love opens it up and says, no matter what you do, you need to follow my laws, but when you break them, I will still love you and I will still be there for you. And really, God had not left them anyway, even though they had continued to turn their backs on him, even up to this point, but God, God's self, vocalizes it through Nathan to David. And plenty of kings will turn, plenty of bad kings of Israel will disobey and abandon God, and that process continues. As we do on a daily basis, we turn to God, and then we turn away from God. We are no different than our Israelite brothers and sisters. So what then does that mean to us? I'm not aware that I have Jewish history in my family or lineage, well, I'm, I follow Jesus. We're Christians. That's got Christ in it. So what does it have to do with this Old Testament business? Everything. Everything. We cannot know Christ until we know the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. We cannot know Christ because of his context, because he was a Jew. To know him is to know the Old Testament. And as Christ talks about us being the inheritors through him, we are connected through the whole, to the whole Old Testament tradition through Christ. So we dare accept all that has been offered, those promises, the commandments, the laws, creation, Noah, Moses, Abraham, all of it, through Christ, because that was his lineage. And obviously, we look ahead. The title of the sermon is The Planting of the Jesse Tree in Advent when we are preparing for Christmas. Sometimes we will lift up the Jesse Tree as just uh, a tool of genealogy. Jesse was David's father. You remember the Ruth and Boaz story? Ruth is a Moabite, pagan, unclean, undesirable. Her husband dies, her mother-in-law Naomi says, I'm going back to my people. And she says, your God will be my God, your people will be my people. Ruth comes, meets Boaz, who is uh, kind of a big shot, wealthy, lets her glean his fields, meaning taking the fallen bits of food and wheat on his crops that he's growing. They wind up falling in love. They have Obed. Obed has Jesse, Jesse has David. So again, God working through unlikely sources. 
not only in the house of Israel, to even set up the lineage and genealogy of the house of David. So when this, this Jesse tree, when we celebrate that at Advent, it is about looking back to this moment, to seeing David set up as king, and then his descendants that will lead us to nine out of ten times, the right answer in church? Jesus. Right. From the house of David will come. That Isaiah 11 passage, of uh, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. That branch will come forward. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. We look back and see that as the foretelling of the coming of Christ. So this passage is great in a variety of ways. It is, again, a pivot point from tribal Judaism into this new state of Israel with its new king. It is the first time that God says, I will be steadfast even when you make mistakes. I am your God, you are my people. And hallelujah for that. There is no better news. That is the essential relationship between God and us as human beings. We seek to follow. Sometimes we hit the mark. Sometimes we don't. Sin is an old archery term for missing the mark. When we miss the mark that God sets, that is what we call sin. But God is there. And this whole idea that God is going to build David a house, it's not a structure. It's not made from wood or gold or bricks. It is his house that he is establishing for generations of which Christ will come. And I don't know that David fully understands, but we do. The Hebrew word, and again, Hebrew words can be translated in many ways. Be'it, the transliteration would be B-A-Y-I-T, Be'it, can mean palace, temple, household, and even dynasty. And so here, God says, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And your house will be this long, undeterred genealogical growth of the people of Israel into and through Christ and then to even the lowly, the pagans, the Gentiles, that is us. And we are connected to that tradition through Christ. So we have built this beautiful house of God, and it is. I love this sanctuary. When we came to visit and we walked in here the first time, it, it's one of those things where you, 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 you don't want to blow your poker face because we hadn't fully negotiated yet. Didn't know if we were in. Vicki and I were here. And we came and I thought, oh, my God, this place is beautiful. I want to be here. I didn't say that right away. This is a gorgeous wood, stained glass, facility, house, spot where we focus on God, our creator. What a gift. And we will continue to keep it in shape, to grow it, to be good stewards of what we've been given. But today God is saying, 
I have built you something bigger and better than this building. You are inheritors and connected to the house of David. What does that mean? It means, as Paul will tell us in 1 Corinthians 6.19, your body is a temple, right? We usually hear that in reference to, well, I need to eat right, I need to work out more. And yes, we need to be healthy. We do need to be good stewards of what we've been given in our physical bodies. But even more than that, why are you a temple? Because God resides in your heart. God is in this place, I have no doubt. But God is calling us to say, you know what? I don't just reside in that place. I am in your heart so that we can go into the world and do amazing things together. Two churches ago when I was a youth pastor at White Memorial Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina, they had a mission trip every year. We would do two weeks in the summer. It's called Appalachian Service Project. It was a Methodist, wonderful ministry. And the basic idea is, as you would think, you go into different aspects and parts of the Appalachian region, whether that's uh, Kentucky or Virginia or North Carolina, Tennessee, into the most impoverished nooks and hollers for folks who are below the poverty line, and their motto is uh, building relationships. No, it's building with house repair on the sides. The people are there with you. They don't help you, but they're present. You're there every day from 9 to 5. It is miserable hot, mandatory long pants, depending on what you're doing, maybe even long sleeves. So you go for a week and you break up into teams and you're not building houses, it's more home repair. So you make better what is already existing. My first summer, I remember this family and they had several young kids. They didn't have water all the way through the winter because their water line cracked, froze. So that year, and that was my first year, my job was to dig a two foot deep trench 100 feet long. That was it. Going through the mountainside, pulling out the rocks, getting down deep enough so that it would fit code and not freeze the water line. Sometimes you work on roofs. Sometimes you're inside. Sometimes you're outside. There are collegians who run it. So during the day, you go and work and you come back at night, and then they offer some education about the region the state of the economics of the region. Now, I visited several coal mines with these folks to discuss all of that. Great ministry. So one year we come back, having been there the year before, and one of our leaders says, I want to go buy this house. We passed it. We've been here before. I want to see if the lady's still here. So we take our little group and we go up. And we knock on the door, old shack, but still standing. And the old woman comes to the door, frail, bent over, looking like she's 162. She was as sweet as she could be. 
welcomed us in, and we said, well, no, we don't want to be a bother. But we were here last summer, and we just wanted to check in with you to see how things are going. And she said, oh, I remember all of you. And then she said something I'll never forget. She said, this is the house that God built. This is the house that God built. Not you, not you, not you. That was God working through your group that week. And each week of the summer was a different group from somewhere else. We did our part in the time we were called to. But she saw it as God building her house. And we were all just moved. It was a powerful moment. And it's here, too, that God says to David, I will build you a house. And not just one little spot, a temple where I will be trapped. But just like we all went as part of a larger Christian community to help this physical lady's house, her physical structure, God, too, through our community, through all Christian communities, and even those who don't know they are acting on Christ's behalf, are seeking to build and continue the house that God starts with David, continues through Christ, who also came to continue and build on that house. And now it falls to us, God's temple in each one of us. It is a struggle. It can be difficult. It can make you want to cry. But if we think God is confined here, if we put God into the box of just this beautiful place and leave God, then we are missing it completely. Because yes, God works through David, but it is through the larger community and the family, the whole house of Israel that continues the ministry and the joy that will lead us to Christ and from Christ to us at First Presbyterian Church today, each of you and me a temple that housed God. What will we do? Keep it here? We can't do that. We've got to take it out with one another at times by ourselves and share with others that they are loved, they are called, and God resides in them too, whether they know it or not or whether they have felt it or not. God is inside of us, each of us, a temple that no matter how dark and scary things get, no matter how painful and lonely, no matter how we grieve, no matter what disease we fight, no matter how addicted we are, no matter how dysfunctional we are, God is in our lives, in this temple inside of you and me. And that is joy and that is good news. But with that comes the responsibility of taking it into the world so others can say, God built this house as well. So let us with joy, let us with persistence and courage go out into the world to proclaim that God resides in us, that God resides in you, and we are seeking to transform this world into God's image. Hallelujah. Amen.